This episode openly discusses themes and situations of suicide and suicidal ideation. Some people might find it disturbing and or not suitable for children of young ages. If you or someone you know is suicidal, please contact your physician, go to your local ER, or call the suicide prevention hotline in your country. Please listen at your own discretion and refer to our show notes for resources. What we've got here is failure to communicate. From sunny Southern California, we bring you Meet Bridget, a podcast for building confident communication and female badassery. We spotlight women who have bridged the gaps in their lives by building strong relationships and speaking their teenage dreams into reality. I feel guilty for feeling peace in my life, but I feel awful for losing my father at the same time. Welcome back to Meet Bridget, a show that dives into the often untold teenage and young adult experiences of super successful women from all types of backgrounds and in every career imaginable. This show is an extension of Bridget, which is a confidence and communication coaching service for young women that my best friend Asha founded and I help run. I co-host this show alongside her. My name is Kishia Rosenberg. For those of you who are new to the show, we're back for season three and I am really excited. Today, I am doing a solo interview with a dear friend named Addie Guajardo. Did I pronounce your last name correctly? Yeah, I love that you put a little Spanish twist to it. Yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> so Addie is an experienced news reporter with a demonstrated history of working in broadcast media. According to her LinkedIn, she's skilled in photography, event management, editing, public speaking, and journalism. According to real life, she's this and so much more. An adrenaline and adventure junkie, a fellow lover of world travel, a student of life, and a deeply caring and extremely fun individual to know and love. I know this personally from going on many trips with Addie and getting ourselves into many a, an adventure. So today, Addie is Phoenix-based. She joined Scripps News as a national correspondent in October of 2020, which had to be super interesting given the time frame. She covers immigration on the Arizona border and general news across the state. I'm really excited to have her here. She's a dear friend. And again, just I, I have a feeling this is going to be a really fun one. So welcome to the show, Addie. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I want to dive right in and just kind of get into, I mean, I know you from you being best friends with one of my favorite people in the world, Bryn Brothers. She's married to my cousin and he's basically my brother. And so we've gone on a lot of trips. I've gotten to know you personally. And as I said before, you're just a really deeply caring, fun, like intelligent individual. We've had some of the best conversations. Tell me now the things I don't know. Tell our listeners about young Addie starting out. What does that look like? Oh my gosh. A young Addie. Young Addie is the second oldest out of four children. Uh, it's three girls, one boy. And growing up, I was always the oddball. Uh, never quite fitting in to the dynamic of my brothers and sisters. So I kind of had to pave my own path along the way. I'm the daughter of two immigrants. Uh, both of my parents are from Mexico. Like many, they came to the United States seeking opportunity, seeking a better life, a better path for their children. And 
you know, that's always the mentality that I had with whatever I did. I said, whatever I do, I have to showcase that I am going to do better things to these opportunities, things to these sacrifices that my parents made at such a young age. I mean, I can't imagine what it's like coming from another country, being away from your family, learning a new language, trying to navigate a whole different culture that's not your own. And that's exactly what they did. And that's what so many families that are immigrants have done for their children here in the United States. So what I've tried to do from a very young age is simply seize every opportunity that I had. I remember being very young and I loved going to school. I remember one day my dad's like, you don't have to go to class. Like you can stay home. And I'm like, no, but I want to go to school. I, and, uh, <laughs> It was funny because I was kind of nerdy, you know, growing up. I remember I had a rolling backpack because I felt the need to bring all my textbooks to school and then bring them right back. And I didn't always read them, but the fact that I just carried them with you me had to meant take that I you. had knowledge. <laughs> yeah. I had a rolling backpack too, but I, I got unfortunately bullied. Lots of lots of people kicking it over in middle yeah. school. <laughs> I don't think it was in the popular kid choice. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. But you know what? It, it is what it is. <laughs> you yeah. can carry a lot more in a rolly backpack than on your back. Yeah, you truly can. And when you're small, small framed, I mean, you got to do what you got to do, right? Yeah, exactly. So you're the second of four kids, three girls, one boy, and your parents are from Mexico. Where did your parents settle? What area did you grow up? What did your parents do for a living? Yeah, so my parents settled right outside of Chicago in Waukegan, which actually had a very big population of Latinos, Hispanics in that area. And also, uh, we lived in a very Black Latino community. Um, my mom, I, I actually didn't know this until I was older in life, was working at Burger King and then odd end jobs at factories. My dad worked in construction. So I remember having to wake up sometimes at four o'clock in the morning so my mom could prepare my dad's lunch so he could take off for the day. And then when he'd get home, I remember I would I was in charge of uh, checking all his dirty clothes, which was the best part. I know it sounds awful, but <laughs> he would always say, you get to keep any change you find in those pockets. So. I wasn't going to miss out on my quarter to buy some hot Cheetos. <laughs> oh, my God. So funny. I love it. I love the image of like a cute little nerdy Addie like going through your dad's clothes at the end of the day. So are you close with your siblings? Are they Do they share this affinity for knowledge and, you know, the oddball habits of change collecting and hot Cheeto loving. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just the odd one. I mean, we're, we're close. We still stay in touch, I, but I've always been the one that's always lived in a different state, been in a different area, pursued a different lifestyle. We all love each other, but it just was always very different. I was the clean freak at home. Everything had to be in its place. So I was that kid that said, I just mopped. You can't walk through this kitchen. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sounds like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> or I would just like marvel. So if you're Latino, Fabuloso was always the smell that was yeah. in your living room, in your house. And I remember I'd get all the carpet lines so perfect. And I'd mop and then I'd walk outside and walk inside and be like, oh, this is the smell of a clean house. 
I mean, what what twelve year old is doing that? <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I love it. So, how were you in school? Like, tell me a little bit about like what your interests were. Like, any what were your friends like? Yeah. So, I had a very interesting school dynamic because I loved school, but I also was put in a very difficult predicament growing up. So. I only spoke Spanish. It was my first language in Mm -hmm. first grade. And my parents only spoke Spanish at home. I think the only person who really spoke some English was my older sister. So when I went to pre-kindergarten and kindergarten, I only spoke Spanish. And then my parents decided to put me in first grade in all English classes. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so confused in first grade and not fully comprehending what was going on. And I was so scared to speak up in that first grade class. My my teacher's name was Miss Keel and she would scare me. I remember one time I was in line. She's like, that assignment is due on who knows what date. And I wrote D-O and she's like, that's not how you spell do. It's D-U-E. She would scare me so much to the point where my mom said I had multiple accidents because I was so yeah. scared to ask her to even Aww. use the restroom. So for a portion of my school, I was very quiet. I was very scared to ask any questions. And then I don't exactly know when, but somewhere in middle school, I broke out of that shell. And I stopped being so embarrassed about repeating first grade because I ended up repeating first grade. They gave Mm -hmm. my parents two options. They said, look, she didn't learn enough in first grade. We have two options. We move her forward and you have to help her get up to speed or we leave her behind. And my parents decided to let me stay behind and do first grade all over again, meaning that I was the oldest one in the classroom all the mm-hmm. time. At that age, as a young child, you don't really understand that it's not its not that big of a deal. You feel so different and you feel like you've done something wrong. Exactly. You feel like you're not smart enough. Uh, kids make fun of you. They're like, why are you older in this classroom than all of us? Oh, you're so old. And I remember that that had a huge impact on on the way that I presented myself and the way I went about school. And some at some point, though, I had this breakout. And I think that was mostly in middle school where I met more people that were very similar to me and my ethnicity and my background. Because one of the other things is going to elementary school. Uh, there was Hispanic kids, but there wasn't a huge population of them at the school that I went to. And I remember... I would bring my tacos because my mom would make us breakfast tacos, wrap them up in foil, and I'd be so embarrassed to eat my taco to the point where I stopped eating lunch at school. I wouldn't even eat the free lunch that I would get at school because I was embarrassed. And I started losing a lot of weight when I was in elementary school, and I remember my parents being extremely concerned. And then in middle school, I just felt like I met more people that were like me, sounded like me, had very similar backgrounds to me. And I think that's what kind of helped me break out of that shell. Yeah. Direct example of why representation matters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and and middle school was such a, it was a place where I really learned without even trying what I wanted to do in life. I always kind of offhandedly said, oh, I'd love to be on the travel channel or I'd love to be like Jorge Ramos. And I remember being in middle school and saying, oh, my gosh, I have to fill out this class. And I didn't know what else to add to my schedule. So I'm like, I don't know what this multimedia class is, but I'm going to try it. And it was 
the yes. first introduction to television news. Uh, I mean, it was more fun. We, what we did is we had like this little newscast and we would just fill in the blanks. Today we're having chicken nuggets or, you know, today's Independence Day means yada, yada, yada. Uh, and I remember it was such a cheesy show, but I would pop in before school, after school, during my lunch break. I was just always in there. And I think that's what solidified. This is what you're passionate about because you're willing to spend so much time doing it. And this is what you should pursue. I love that. I love the Adi Guajardo origin story. <laughs> yeah, it was quite an evolution. Yeah. Were there any shows that you were like fascinated by any like news anchors that piqued your interest at that time? Or was it like this class just opened your eyes to this world? It opened my eyes to the possibility of entering and breaking into mm -hmm. this world. But I always watched Primer Impacto. I watched Univision. It was constantly playing in the yeah. house. So a lot of my family dynamic has a lot to do with what I decided to pursue in life as well. My mom didn't make it past middle school because she was pulled out of school to work out on the field. My dad didn't make it past elementary school. So their education level was nearly non-existent if you, if you think about it they could speak it but they couldn't really read a lot in spanish so what i started to, to realize is that well we have to inform everyone it can't just be the educated community that's informed and, and understands fully what's happening in our nation what changes need to happen in order for the change that they want to see to happen so what i realized is if you're in broadcast news, you can provide information to everybody and anybody, no matter their education level, because everyone can speak. You might not be able to read very well, but you can speak very well. So if there's a broadcast that breaks down a very complicated issue, you have a better understanding of what's happening in your community and what changes you want to see. You can try to go out and try to make a difference and, and create that change that you hope to see in your own community. So just the fact that you can speak it and have everybody understand it, to me, was very impactful. To me, it could be that difference in the community. I really like that ethos. It's like you're, you took your experience of growing up Latino in a household with parents who worked their entire lives and for, you know, had to forego, like so many other immigrants, a traditional education. I think here in America, we often take for granted the small luxuries. You know, everyone has things going on. But like you point out, there's a huge discrepancy for a large community of people in the information received because of these language barriers or these cultural barriers. So I think it's it's really amazing to hear from the perspective of somebody whose job it is to deliver information, how impactful that can be if you really think about the way that you're doing it. And I think that that's, it's so cool that that just came from your experience growing up. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's, it's such a common theme in so many families. You have mixed status families living together. That means sometimes multiple languages are spoken at home and not everybody is completely fluent in one language or the other. And I think that that's also been something that I've, uh, you know, tried to figure out throughout my career because sometimes I'll think of a word in Spanish, but then it doesn't come in English or I'll come in English, but it doesn't come in Spanish. So it's, it's that constant switch in languages in your head too. That back and forth. Yeah. So tell our audience a little bit about, you know, so once you decided 
you wanted to be in broadcast journalism. It sounds like that this spark really happened coming out of middle school, like going through the classes and then just kind of figuring out that this is something you're passionate about. So once you decided that that's what you wanted to do, how did you set your sights on creating that for your future? Yeah. So it just slowly evolved. It went from this one television class to getting into high school and then the broadcast television class that they had there. They had a podcast club. I was part of the newspaper club. And then that all rolled into college. But I went through a very traumatic episode of life. It was high school when I lost my dad. Um, I lost my dad to suicide. And I think that even though I had an idea of how my life would play out, you can never predict that something like that is going to happen to your family mm -hmm. and to you at such a, you know, young age. We, we like to think that our parents have everything figured out. We like to think that, you know, they're the ones that are paving this road and we're just kind of on it. And we're also trying to cover our own paths. So when something like that happens, it's very difficult to stay on track. And I definitely got off track as I tried to navigate the hurt and the pain and everything that came with it. I can't imagine, Addie. I, um, we have mental health issues in my family and, um, significant ones. And so for me, I can feel your pain and your hurt. And I want to jump through this screen and hug you because this is like heavy. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because there's times where I can have these conversations and the feelings are there, but I can just like immediately talk through it. And then there's times where it's like this, where it sets in and you realize, yeah, that, that person hasn't been part of my life at this point for 15 plus years. Yeah. And I've been very bad at it because it's very difficult for me to, it was very difficult for me and still to this day is very difficult for me to process those feelings. So that's why I have a lot of mix up when it comes to those years, because the year that it happened was such a blur for me where mm -hmm. I know the date uh, that it happened. I don't know the year because it was such a blur to me. So when my siblings, you know, bring it up, we all have very different perspectives and we were all at different places when we found out. So we all process this very differently. And some of them are very great about saying like, it's been this many years. And to me, it's just, a blur because I tried for so long to block that portion and that portion of my life was so blurry for, for quite a while. Well, it's so traumatizing and, you know, with grief in and of itself, I feel like there's a misconception that when something tragic happens that warrants grieving after, you feel like the general consensus is, okay, over time it gets better and then you won't be grieving as much. And I think that that's a misnomer. When you lose someone or, you know, go through this type of period in your life, it's so significant and it stays with you and it becomes a part of the fabric of your being so much so that I feel like what you just described is 
what it is. Life is carrying these pieces with us. And sometimes, you know, you can dissociate a little bit better than others. Yeah. And, and, and it's, it's been such a evolutionary thing where, you know, back when I lost my dad, you know, it was said he took his life. Mm-hmm. And now the evolution of how we approach suicide is they died by suicide mm-hmm. because it's more of a mental health state that they couldn't get themselves out of where they felt that this was the only out because every day moving forward just seemed impossible for them. Yeah. It's wild. I This conversation's come up in my family a bit. And so I think the fact that the conversation is changing is a step in the right direction. I think a lot of people who don't have direct um, experience with this don't realize, like you said, what it is. It is part of a disease and a mental illness. And I, I think if you put yourself sort of in that person's shoes too, that person is living in an alternate reality. And I mean... Right now, if you just imagine putting on like a VR headset and you're in a different place, like what you see and experience is very real to you. But that's why it is a disease. I'm so sorry for your loss. And um, this sentence won't do it justice, but it's very brave. And um, and thank you for sharing that with me and with our audience. Um one thing that I have realized that nobody really talks about when it comes to suicide is the the sense of relief that you sometimes feel. And this is such a difficult thing to talk about because everybody has such a different relationship with the person. In our situation, my dad brought so much chaos, so much trauma, into our family dynamic where I would have never in my entire life wished this on him. But when we did lose him, it was almost a sense of peace that that trauma that he had brought to our family was finally over. But then there is this other feeling of this is my father. This is the person who gave me life. This is the person who provided all these opportunities for me in life and cared for me. So it's something that I've tried to get over with my own therapist. It's just this feeling of, I feel guilty for feeling peace in my life, but I feel awful for losing my father at the same time. So it's something that uh, still working through. And I don't know if I'll ever get to a point where I'm completely okay with the feelings that I I feel inside and that tear me left and tear me right. Well, one, I think this is really important for people to hear because this is real. This is the part of life that is so encumbered, you know, with different layers. It's like if you have a loved one to love somebody comes with all of these other obligations and qualifications and exceptions. And I think we're at a stage, I mean, we're in our early 30s right now, but I sense a shift in my relationship with my parents, you know, and at some point, everyone who has a mom and dad that are a part of their lives, living or not, there comes like this turn where you realize like, 
oh, I'm becoming an adult. And my parent that I looked at as this figure, this like masthead of everything that was happening around me is suddenly so human. And we hit a point where you start to experience these things and realize that the person you were looking at for guidance and and for, you know, the answers, it was like very much in the position we are in now where you're figuring it out, you're doing the best you can, um, struggling with your own mental health issues or the past or tragedies. It's kind of indescribable, actually. I mean, I, I feel like there's no, there's no perfect way to put a finger on it, but there, it's just this shift and you realize that the people that you are loving and have been looking up to are, are very much still trying to figure it out on their own. I'm so sorry that your dad struggled so much with these things, you know, to the point that he felt like that was his saving grace. I mean, I'm, it's sort of, to me, it feels like being in the eye of the storm and then having it pass. It's like this big event. There's a calm, but it's not all it's cracked out to be, you know? Yeah. So at that age, I know you describe this time as such a blur, but you already had a sense of who you were as a person and what you were really interested in. What helped bring you out of, or what, not bring you out, but what helped kind of propel you forward and stay on path? I know you you mentioned that you had a really hard time staying on track, what were the things that you remember of that time that sort of helped guide you back toward the direction of your future? You know, to be honest with you, I think I was lost uh, the rest of that high school, you know, until graduation. Um, I think that I, I found bits and pieces of myself here and there. And it wasn't until I got into college that I joined the broadcast club. And it was there that I met my professor, my journalism professor, Mark Zromsky. And I remember going to these broadcast meetings. I think they were once a week, maybe twice a week. It was it was only a couple of blocks away from one of my rentals back then. And uh, I remember sitting on the sofa one time. And he was just such a, he is such a caring person. And I want to make sure that I say is because he's still around. He's still a professor. He's such a caring person. We were sitting on the sofa. And he's like, what's going on, uh, Addy? And... Uh, I remember, I don't know why, there was just this sense of, I can trust you. And I opened up to him about my hurt and kind of everything that, you know, I was going through. And then he shared that he had lost his daughter in a car accident. And his daughter, Kate, was very young. And we bonded over our hurt. And whenever he kind of saw me falling off or whenever I needed guidance as to what am I doing wrong? Where do I, where do I go next? He was always there. He was always this grand soul that helped me stay on track. Even after I graduated college, I took a three year gap between then and my career. And I remember reaching out to him, picking up the phone. Hey, Mark, I want to be a reporter. I know I've taken three years off after graduating from college. I got to put a demo reel together. I need your help. He's like, pop into my office. Come on in. Let's brainstorm. Uh, we brainstormed. I ended up putting this little demo reel together. And I started 
sending out my demo reel and applying to jobs when I was, I, I, what was I like 25 or something like that? Maybe 26. Yeah. So I, I give a lot of credit to Mark Zaromsky and his ability to care so much about the students that he was teaching. Yeah, that's incredible. And to this day, we're still in contact. I still call him before accepting a job. I still call him when I have questions about where I want my career to go. I still call him when I have questions about a story that I'm working on. <laughs> I love it. I think it's it's great to find these mentors and to just ask the questions. But I also love that he gave you the opportunity to just speak freely about who you were, what was hurting you, and like how to, in a sense, it feels like it it propelled you forward, you know, how to use it as sort of like the fire behind you instead of um, instead of something that held you back. So what was your first job? Where did you, what ended up landing for you? Yeah, so I got my internship when I was in LA. So I did my internship in LA at Mundo Fox back then it was the name of it. I remember doing my internship and that was rough. Oh my gosh. I, I remember there was a reporter, I will not mention by name, saying, um, this isn't the industry for you, so you should find a job at a different career. And I remember going home and, you know, thinking about it, I'm like, gosh, am I, am I pursuing the wrong career? I questioned myself. I can't tell you how many times I questioned myself. And I went through this whole thing where am I good enough? Can I be a reporter? Do I have what it takes to be a reporter? Uh, is this truly what I want to do? And I had to dig deep inside and say, yes, this is what I want to do. And this is what I'm going to do. And I, I was dating somebody at the time that was extremely supportive in that perspective that helped me put the demo reel together. And I landed my first job in Eugene, Oregon. And it was not easy. You know, you are learning so much information, processing so much information. And I remember I got hired as a reporter and a producer. They didn't let me on air until six months in or so. I got passed up by other full-time reporters that were hired on. My morale was on the ground. I was just thinking in my head, am I not good enough? Do I not have what it takes? What am I doing wrong? Where could I be doing better? I can't tell you how many times I cried myself to sleep at that job. I would go home. I didn't have family. I was just getting to know and make friends. And I didn't feel like I was good enough. And I felt like I was doing something wrong. So I'd go home and I'd cry. And then I'd, I'd, I'd get myself together and be like, okay, this sucks. But we need to figure out a way to get you on air. We need to figure out what you need to do to convince them that you were good enough to do this job and exceed and excel at this job. So what kept you going? Because I, I know you to be relentless, but where does that come from? Like, can you put a name to that face? Oh, gosh. I think it comes from seeing my dad work so hard in construction, seeing my mom work multiple jobs. After my dad passed away, my mom was caring for four kids. Um, at one point, my older sister was gone early out of the house, but my mom was caring for four kids, working two jobs, working at factories. 
and she was doing her best to provide for us. My first job was flipping funnel cakes, selling cotton candy at Six Flags. That was my first official job on the record. I did all these odd end jobs, cleaning houses with my mom. I washed yachts and boats with my mom to make extra money. I babysat kids. And I think it was just that want, that hunger to succeed, that hunger to say, my parents sacrificed so much and I've been through so much trauma. I can't fail now. I can't give up halfway through. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Just taking that and then using it. There's such a fire in you. And I think anyone listening to this can hear that in your voice. And it's it's not um, rehearsed. It's so genuine, Addie. And I think this is why I always love talking to you because it could really be about anything, right? Like it could... And the one thing I want to be clear about, it's not easy. I met up with a friend yesterday and I've had people say to me, I look up to you. I admire your tenacity. I admire your hunger. And it's very difficult for me to understand and process that somebody else admires my work because I'm so critical of myself. Mm -hmm. Every time I stumble on air, every time something doesn't come out flawlessly, I go back and I'm, I'm thinking about it. Where can I improve? I'm one of those people who doesn't believe that I am perfect. I believe that I am flawed beyond most people's perspectives of me. And my way of compensating for that is to simply reflect, think about it and say, where can I improve? I know I'm not the best. So then I reach out to people and I seek out that mentorship or that feedback where I feel like, okay, I'm getting better. This is actually a theme too that we hear with a lot of our most successful women. And I think it's something really important to extract here is that there are different versions of how people grow up you know, and different things that we tell ourselves. And I think that for so long, the trend was, you know, you're either shit and so you stay shit, but that's not true. You're a testament to that. Or you just embrace the fact that life is imperfect and we're imperfect and that perfectionism, um, which is so rampant. And I think that that's still the case now, especially with like social media. Like we have these young, you know, young women, young men that like, and and everything in between, they come out of the gates thinking like, I have to have it all figured out. It has to be polished. The image has to be perfect. And there's a lot that goes into that. And so, you know, comparison is a killer, but I think you, you really hit on something that's really important, which is you take, or you should take these imperfections, these things that you might be hard on yourself for. And you can strive for a better version. You can strive to be better just by utilizing your resources and reaching out and, you know, calling your professor and having him run through things with you. And, you know, that's not a sign of not being perfect or being weak or not being good enough. That's utilizing every resource and nugget that you've learned along the way to continue building on your current skill set. And that's how 
ultimately you get stronger. Like success is not just this one-way path. Like you didn't wake up and become like this fantastic news reporter. There were all of these things that happened in between, you know, plus your natural ability to speak to people and articulate yourself. But it takes a lot of work and you've done the work. It takes a lot of work. And you highlighted something that I want to make sure that we get across to the young women that are listening to this podcast is that I went through that episode where I felt like I had to be the best reporter before I could apply for a job. Mm -hmm. I, I felt like I wasn't worthy of applying for a job because I didn't have all the skill sets. And you, once you shed that, that blindfold that you have of, of this need to be perfect, you realize especially in the field of journalism and broadcast journalism, you are learning a lot of the things you need to know because you are out there on the field. You are talking to people. You are talking to officials. Every story that I cover is so different. I covered four Americans kidnapped last week. You know, previous to that, it was probably, I couldn't tell you, I was on vacation, but um, sometimes it's a mass shooting. Sometimes it is a hurricane. And you're put in very different situations each time. So you're learning and you're polishing off your skills by being in that industry. So never say, I'm not good enough or I'm not ready enough or I'll never be ready enough to apply for this job. Apply for the job. You'll learn the skills that you need on the job. Mm -hmm. Completely agree. Some of the... <laughs> One of the things I used to do, I can't remember if I've talked about this with Asha in the past um, before, but one of the things I used to do and probably still will do to this day is I used to just apply to jobs, like all kinds of jobs. I actually took this theory or this this tactic with me through dating too before I met Kev. But it's like you apply for every job, you date every person. Like there are very few instances where I would say no to things. Like obviously if it didn't feel safe or it was, you know, it was just sketchy. But I did that because I was like, I am always so afraid to fail. I'm always so afraid to look stupid or to fall on my face. That like the only way to get over that is just to keep doing it. Like keep, keep failing, like keep doing crap at the interview. Like, because every time I'd walk away from it, I'd be like, oh, I should have said this. I should have structured it this way. Or they asked these questions and that's really good for me to remember for next time. Similarly with like dating, it's like you you learn what you like, what you don't like. So it's like that action of just being like relentless and throwing yourself into these situations often like lets you come out on the other side with just yeah. more tools in the toolbox, more knowledge in your pocket. It is. And, and I think that we're seeing so many companies really focus on also diversifying their business and their game plan and who they have on board and who they interview that's also helping. Um, I think one of the things that I've struggled with is what some people see as passion and eagerness is sometimes misinterpreted. And some people will say, you sound angry. And I'm like, I'm not angry. I'm just passionate. I just want yeah. to do this right. I want to get it right. I want it to sound great, look great, be great. I'm like, I'm not angry. I'm just passionate. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I think it's the spicy Latina that I've been told. They're like, oh, you're a little spicy. I'm like, no, I just care so much about what I do that I want just to make sure that it's the best product that's out there that I can put together. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see that come across, but I might be a little biased. I want to dive into that a little bit more, too. I mean, you are a Latina reporter. 
Latina American reporter, should I say. What's that been like? What have the struggles been, if any? Like, has it been difficult for you to be taken seriously or to find the right opportunities? Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. Um, I, I, I'd like to think that I have prepared myself. I have put myself in, in overall great situations where I don't feel like I've ever been discriminated against in any of the environments that I've worked in. I mean, I think I've gotten the offhanded comment, the spicy Latina, which I was very quick to correct them on mm-hmm. <laughs> and make sure that they understood that it was passion that was coming out. It wasn't anger. But if anything, it's benefited me. When I was in high school, I was so scared to to like really showcase that I spoke Spanish very fluently because it wasn't the coolest thing to do back then. Just like it wasn't cool to bring tacos to school and eat them, you know, out of your foil paper. Now everybody's like, you got tacos? Like, oh my yeah. gosh. Like the way that it's been embraced, the, the diversity, the cultures in schools and in different environments is so different than when I was growing up. And so what I've realized throughout my career is that ability to be bilingual, that trauma that I have endured throughout my life. Um, I understand when I'm talking to a domestic violence victim. I understand when I when I talk to somebody who tells me they just had their electricity taken out because they couldn't afford to pay the bill. That happened to me growing up. I can connect with people on a different level because I speak Spanish fluently. If I'm sent into an area to cover a Hispanic neighborhood where there was something terrible that happened. I have the ability to connect with those people in that community and understand to be able to tell their story. When I cover immigration issues, I'm the daughter of two immigrants, but I see both sides of the story and that's how I report it. And I think if anything, I'm a better reporter because I can better understand the stories of immigrants and people who are migrating or people who are at the border and why they're coming into the United States. So i I have a better grasp of the language. I have a better understanding of what's bringing them. And I have a better way of asking the questions that are necessary to tell their stories. So if anything, I think it's helped me throughout my career to be bilingual, to be Latina, and to be able to give a platform and a voice to my community, to people that look like me, sound like me, and that come from similar backgrounds as me. I love that so much for so many different reasons. But I think that, you know, embracing who we are. And I grew up, you know, I'm first generation American as well. My mom emigrated from the Philippines. For us, it was a little different in that, like, I don't know if it was just our family that experienced this, but contrary to like how your parents spoke Spanish at home, like my mom never spoke Tagalog at home. There were little things. And I think part of it wasn't on purpose, but I think part of that was just this pride of like moving to America and feeling the need to assimilate so badly that you want to erase your culture in a way so that your children can have a better life. This is something that happens in a lot of, you know, first generation American homes as well. If it's like not one version, it's it's this version. It took me a really long time to feel proud of like my background. You know, I grew up in different scenarios. We moved a lot and often I was the minority. And it it really took going through school, going through college, landing in different professional settings to sort of, you know, 
shed that uncomfortability. And I hate to admit it, but I think it's just, it was part of growing up. You know, you, you want to be the same as everyone so badly and you want to not feel different so badly that you feel like you have to, you know, commit to this assimilation and erasure of like everything that makes you who you are. And now I'm like so glad that I've gotten over that because, you know, being a Filipino, being, um, Asian American Pacific Islander is a big part of my identity. And I think that we have to keep talking about things like this because if I'm doing it, if you did it, kids, teens, you know, people unsure of themselves feeling like they're coming out of the gates as like the black sheep or or that they're a little bit different, you know, they need to hear these stories and realize that this is part of what makes us so unique and individual and that you can definitely use it as a strength in whatever avenue you decide to go into. You can, and it's not easy. I can't tell you how many times when I was in elementary school and middle school, I would cry because I didn't understand my homework. And I couldn't turn to my parents and ask them to help me because they didn't have the education that was necessary to get me through that assignment. And it's difficult, but if you find people who help you along the way, and that makes it a million times better and it puts you in a better position. I remember I grew up in a very black, Hispanic middle school where whites were the minority. And I didn't understand math very well, although I enjoyed math. And guess what? I talked to that teacher and I would say, I don't know how to do this. I don't know how to do that. He'd be like, okay, Addie, well, show up before class with all the questions that you have or stay after class with all the questions that you have. And I think I also had the ability um, to seek out help. I was part of the YWCA program, this all young women's program where they they shop you around um, during the summer and they showcase like the different jobs that you can do. And I remember they took me to a morgue. <laughs> that was the creepiest thing to shadow for a job. <laughs> and then, or actually it may have been a coroner's office. I might be confused on that one. And they also took me to a courthouse where this judge let me wear their robe and say, you could be a judge too. So I was also exposed to all these opportunities of you don't have to go into a career that your parents have also done. You can do something greater and better. I love that. And I like how your work mirrors that in a way. I mean, you spend a lot of time and thought into curating these stories and delivering them in a way that people can easily digest so that they can understand the world and the community that they're living in and these things that are happening. I think it's a theme that you've carried through your career and um, are doing so, so gracefully and beautifully and making the world better one news story at a time. <laughs> and here's the thing. There's so many comments and posts whirling around, uh, you know, fake news, fake news, fake news. And we are just trying our best to provide you the news. We're not there to tell you decide this way, decide that way, do this, don't do that. We're there to provide you the information. And as a viewer, you make a decision on what ultimately comes out of that story. Our goal is for our stories to inform our viewers and to inform them to the point that if they feel like something is lacking, then they can go out and try to create the change they want to see. I really appreciate that because 
the way that information and data is presented these days is so different from how it used to be that I think the fact that you really dig deep to maintain that integrity and to deliver information, as you said, not a story or a narrative, but just the information so that people can decide how they feel about it or if they want to do something about it. It's um, a very Walter Cronkite quality that is missing now. And so it's so refreshing and, and fun. And it fills me with such a sense of pride that I, I know you and get to call you my friend and get to share a little bit of you with our listeners. If we look back at what news once was, it's been such an evolution over the years. It's never been 100% cut and dry. I think it's been cut and dry in bits and pieces. And I think we're, we're definitely better. And I think it's so hard to kind of say, you know, specifically what is better and what is not. But what I'm, I'm referring to is if you watch some of the very old newscasts or even like some of the really old newspapers, there's some opinion in there as well. And like I remember I watched a, a segment of this reporter saying, we believe he came out of that window right there. <laughs> Where nowadays you have to source everything. Authorities say the latest information from a source that we have close contact uh, that knows this investigation, we have to make sure that we're sourcing all of the information that we're providing. And I think it's so vital for people of today's day and age to understand what is a reliable news source and what is not a reliable news source. Going to Facebook to get your news from a source that doesn't have any background on how they gather is going to be questionable. So I think it's so important for, for people to understand what is reliable news, uh, a reliable news source and what is not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's such a good point. It's really easy right now to get creative with the facts, <laughs> if you will, like in the nicest way possible. And I think you make a really good point that especially pulling news from places like Facebook, which I think is probably the most rampant just because it's so it looms so large in everyone's life, you know, like that's where people connect. And I think it was meant to be a community as opposed to anything else. But now, I mean, people are actually taking things off of TikTok and Instagram and, and Facebook and heralding it as the truth. And as you said, like that's not necessarily a reliable source. It's too easy to doctor things to what do you call it? Like stitch clips together. I mean, now they yeah. have deep fake technology, which is crazy. You have like the fake Keanu Reeves and the fake Tom Cruise, but like it exists and it's it's a real problem. And I think I even read something that like deep fake technology is going to be like the next big issue in like the upcoming elections because the the technology is here to do those things. And I think as consumers of information and as citizens, like you have to be very careful you know, about the information you're digesting and where it's coming from. I think, you know, that's such a good point. Yeah. TikTok, it's running rampant on TikTok as well. I can't tell you how many people I've seen weigh in on a story and provide inaccurate information, even about the four Americans that were kidnapped or mm -hmm. even, you know, tell a story and then completely rip off information that a news organization worked very hard to gather without sourcing them. 
Mm-hmm. That's plagiarism in a sense. If you think about mm-hmm. it, you can't just take information from a news organization, let's say the New York Times or the Washington Post or Scripps News, and then cite it as your own research. You have to give credit where it's due. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. I think that's so important. Uh, I could really listen to you talk all day and engage, obviously, but I I think you're such a, you've always been such a fun person to converse with because you have a very discerning eye and a very, you know, incredible way of sharing the truth and your learnings. I, I think like me, you love learning everything you can about every place you travel to and everything that you're doing. And um, I think that you tackle life with a lot of grace and courage, Addie. I think, um, you know, even when you do those, like, what is it? Hundreds of foot bungee jump, you know, it's like, it's you tackling your fears and um, doing it head on. And I think that's a theme synonymous throughout your life and your career. And I, I just love it. I wish that we could keep you on all day, but if you're ready to transition into a little fun fast five before we head out and and turn down the lights on this interview. Okay, so these questions are meant to kind of just shake off a little bit of the seriousness of, you know, our interview. Just quick, fun, easy answers. So number one, best piece of advice you've ever received? Work hard at any job that you have, even if you're the janitor, you are the janitor of a school, make sure you have the cleanest floors, the cleanest space. It doesn't matter what job you have, do it to the best of your ability. And if you are a janitor, walk outside, walk back in right after you're done and be like, oh, (laughs) smells clean. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Number two, best way to find inspiration, either for a story or just in life. Turn to people you admire. Turn to people's stories that you love and ask them, you know, how they got to where they are. Reading, a lot of reading, a lot of self-help books help me a lot. Love it. Number three, most essential habit for a successful day. Oh, God, I'm so bad at it, but I need to get better at it. It is simply creating a small routine. I I don't mean your entire day but a small routine to find time to meditate and process your thoughts. It's something I got from Oprah. 10 minutes out of the day, meditate at the beginning of the day. I need to get better at it. So I need to take my own advice on that one. (laughs) (laughs) Oprah knows best. (laughs) Okay. Number four, one thing or story that you're really passionate about right now. Oh, gosh. Um, The problem is that I have a million passions. (laughs) passions. <laughs> There's like, I'm like one day I'm like, I want to do this. I want to do a story about aliens. I want to do a story on the border. I want to do a story about all the food in Phoenix. I want to do a story about, uh, you know, haunted houses. My brain is in like 10 different places while I'm in one, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, I'm really passionate right now about, um, making sure we have the right information to tell the, stories of what is happening at our Texas and our Arizona border. Number five, favorite story piece you've ever done. Oh, gosh. Uh, Favorite story piece. There's a few. The one that comes immediately to mind, and it's it's not a happy, light, featurey piece, 
it is migrant deaths along the southwest border. Uh, we I had that special come out. It was one of my first ones when I started at Scripps News about how many migrants have died trying to cross into the United States and how that number will never be known and how the Sonoran Desert here in Arizona is a cemetery. And we don't know how many migrants have died crossing into the United States, and we may never know what that number is. So what it did is it provided perspective of the sacrifices these people are willing to take, even at a young age, just to mm -hmm. try to seek opportunity. And I think that I... I hold that one so close to my heart because I know that those were sacrifices that my parents made for me to have the opportunities that I have today. Yeah. Yeah. I know that wasn't the lighthearted response you're no, no, no. looking for. No, but it was an honest one. Also, I, I want to listen to that piece. Yeah. Okay. Here's a final question. It's not part of our Fast Five. It's just something that we like to share at the end of each of our interviews. What was one quality that you had as a young woman or child that you didn't take pride in then, but that you carry with you now, and that is an essential part of who you are now? You don't see it all the time. Uh, you saw it today. I'm a very emotional person. Very, very emotional. You, you see it growing up, and as I've gotten older, I try to kind of hide that because I have to be a reporter. I have to give the news first. I have to be well composed. And this is a question that I get uh, from viewers is I've covered more than six mass shootings at this point. It's, do you feel, do you ever feel the, the hurt that these communities are feeling? And I 100% feel it. But what I've learned to do is when I'm working, I work, I get that assignment done. And then Days later, when I have time for myself, I process that and I embrace that I'm hurting. I embrace that it was a tough story to, to cover. I embrace those feelings because if I don't process those feelings, those feelings are going to be there and they're going to just come up one day without me realizing what's going on. So I'm trying to embrace better the emotional little Addie that was such a yeah. little crybaby tattletale growing up. Yeah. I love it. I love all aspects of you. And I think that it's such a gift to be able to share you and your personality with our audience and viewers. I think you've shared so much about who you are and what makes you the successful woman you are today. And um, I can't wait for, for our listeners to hear and for our audience to hear how you went from young, emotional, passionate Addie to the woman you are now. <laughs> <laughs> and it's still work in progress. It never stops. And I think that's the number one piece of advice that I have for people is never stop trying to be the best version of yourself. Yes. So where can our listeners find you? Where can they log on and like see the news? Yeah. And you can find me on Instagram, Addy underscore Guajardo. You can find me on Twitter, Addy GTV. You can find me on Facebook, Addy Guajardo. You can find me, if you can think of the social media platform and you just pop <laughs> in my name, you'll find me because I have to be on all of them. <laughs> yeah, so pick your poison. I, I, I'll be on there. <laughs> I love it. Your Instagram in itself is really and fun. scriptsnews.com. I'll add that in, scriptsnews.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Addy. I love you. Love your work. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. And that's our show. If you liked what you heard today, please like, subscribe to, 
follow and share Meet Bridget with your circle. The best way to help our work here is to rate and review our podcast. We're listening and constantly working to build something helpful for you. Catch you next time. Did you have an awesome time? Did you drink awesome shooters and listen to awesome music and then just sit around and soak up each other's awesomeness?